The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. Neighbors, the ones whose weeds are this high, the ones who have about eight cars in their driveway, four of them on blocks, the ones with that dog that doesn't stop barking, or the music at 2 a.m. that you can hear coming through your walls. Current situation for our family, fantastic. Amazing neighbors. One of them was here last night. We've got Cherie, Marcus, we've got Bev, Alex, Josh, Lara, Nancy, Ziad. We're in a great spot right now where people in the neighborhood take care of each other, look out for each other, ride share together, and doing just a little bit of life together. But for us, that was not always the case. Ten years ago, my family and I had the opportunity to move from Washington to the Bay Area to take over a, a small church that wanted to attract young families. So we had small kids. We would attract allegedly small kids when their parents. So we found a neighborhood with all these houses smashed together, found this beautiful little house with a porch swing on it, and we were ready to go. We were ready to do life together. We were ready to have barbecues together, to watch our kids walk to school together, maybe even to have the opportunity to share our life and our faith with them, to point them to Jesus. Maybe they'd come to the church that we were at and come to faith in Christ. The neighbors were more than annoying. They became the opposition. It was the day when the toddler in a diaper was in the middle of the street with parents nowhere to be seen, probably smoking dope in the backyard, that we knew something was wrong. The neighbor across the street who gave their little kid a phone when had no problem showing other small children porn on the phone. The neighbor whose door ended up getting smashed with a battering ram after we found out selling drugs. The neighborhood became a nightmare. And then we were accused of something, and it wasn't true. And we pulled in one day in the car, and they saw us coming, and they grabbed their kids, and they ran to their own houses treated like garbage. Later on, it was found out in a public forum that we were not guilty of the crime. But you know the old adage is that if you're guilty, if you're accused, you're guilty no matter what. We left that neighborhood after six years, picking shrapnel out of our bodies. The devastation had been done, and we were ready to not talk to anybody ever again. You and I face opposition everywhere we go whether it's at a job. Maybe you've got a, a disgruntled coworker that makes your life a living hell. Maybe things like fentanyl being laced on prescription drugs. Did you know that just a little bit is far more powerful and deadly and easier to make than heroin? Maybe your kids have others after them. Maybe it's trolls on social media making their lives miserable. And intellectually, I know, and if you're a follower of Christ, you know about sin. And you know that we are facing a spiritual battle. But practically, I get angry. And it defeats me. And sometimes I'm done. What is God's plan for us when we face opposition? Well, the nation of Israel 
disobeyed God. And they found themselves exiled. The nation of Judah, they were exiled to Babylon, late 500s B.C. And Jerusalem was destroyed. Only 50 years later, there was a new sheriff in town. The Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire. And King Cyrus, their king, through God, allowed them to come back to Jerusalem. Allowed them to come back and to build their city, to build their temple. And sure enough, they did. Another seven years later, after that, we introduce, we're introduced to a man named Nehemiah. And we find out that except for the temple, the city is completely in ruins. And so Nehemiah is devastated. And he prays and he fasts and he seeks God's face. And then he goes to the king and he works for the king. He himself, Nehemiah, in exile, living in Susa, serving the king. A very close confidant of the king. And the king blesses him and sends him on his way, makes him the governor of Judah, and allows him to go back and to build the walls of his city. The pagan king does that. Now, in the Old Testament, cities and their walls were very, very important. If you drive I-15, if you drive I-5, you go from city to city to city, and there's nothing really to delineate one from the next. Not so true in the ancient Near East. You're talking about a city who was essentially a city-state that they had to defend themselves, just the city, against any other warring city that wanted to come after them. So the wall was of utmost importance to defend that. And these cities, if they had been conquered at some point and the, the entire town would be razed, they wouldn't excavate before they built again. They would build on top of that city. And then the next city would be built on top of that. So pretty soon you have a city on a hill. And so that fence, or excuse me, that wall would come around them and would defend them from the enemies of attack. So Nehemiah had this project. He has to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. This is not the six-foot redwood dog-eared fence that is dividing you and your neighbor. This is a wall made of stone, a concrete kind of thing, 8, 10, 12 feet thick, 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40 feet high that they have to build. No John Deere, no Caterpillar, no cranes, just painful manual labor of picking that stuff up. And I don't know if you've done any concrete work. We used to take our youth group and build these small modest homes over in TJ. And the organization that we worked with said, you know what, we want everybody participating, so no power tools. So day one was mixing the concrete slab by hand. And it was an exhausting day. This would be for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. So the small percentage of exiles who have chosen to return based on Cyrus's decree, they get there and they're ready to build this thing. And it's all hands on deck, as Steve talked about last week. Butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, whatever your skill set is, you are hired, you are building this wall. But if only physical labor was the only obstacle you faced. We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 4. There are these Bibles in front of you. If you have one of these, we're looking at page 405. And we're starting with verse 1. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, 
What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think that they can build a wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse even if a fox walked along top of it. Sounds like some kind of wall that I would build personally. The first obstacle in your note sheet that you'll see there is personal attacks. Nehemiah and the laborers are facing personal attacks. Sanballat harasses them. Tobiah ridicules their work. Now, the passage that Grant read, he introduced us to these two men. And extra-biblical sources will confirm that Sanballat was the governor of nearby Samaria. And here was what we know of Sanballat at that point. That he was somebody partially of Jewish ancestry and partially Jewish beliefs. And he was also somebody with a certain amount of power that probably wanted some more power. I've got Samaria. Why not Judea as well? Why not Jerusalem? That would be great. But we find out from the passage that he's been told, no, no, this does not concern you. You are not welcome here. So his anger probably increases as he sees his opportunity to amass more responsibility, more power being rejected. Verse 4. Then I prayed, hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. If you've ever worked with kids, if you have kids of your own, you probably at some point have had the, the conversation or over and over again about swearing or not swearing. But when I scan this passage, I don't see anything that looks like a four-letter word. But what I see in here is probably even more vicious in what he says. Nehemiah is so angry that these guys are coming after them, that they want to destroy God's work. He tells them, may they experience exile. May they have the opportunity to be sent to another country where they know nothing and to be treated like slaves. And God, don't you dare forgive them. Verse 6, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashdodites, heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city by day and night to protect ourselves. The second obstacle you have there on your note sheet, threats of violence. Threats of violence. Sanballat moves beyond his anger, and he makes it very clear that if you continue this, I'm coming after you. You're going down. He's going to bring his army to defeat Nehemiah and the laborers. And so Nehemiah talks to God again, and this time it's not a, a prayer of anger. This is like, help me. He brings the group together, and in this corporate prayer, God, we can't do this without you. Join us. Help us. Verse 10. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired, and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them. 
and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. Obstacles number three and four. Physical exhaustion, discouragement. Physical exhaustion, discouragement. If you've ever done some labor in your backyard, maybe you were building a trench for a sprinkler system and you've been working out in the hot Temecula sun for an hour or two and you take a step back and assess your work, you realize you're only a fraction of the distance across the yard. Oh, I'm exhausted and I'm discouraged. A work stoppage for me is quite likely. Max Dupree was the CEO of a furniture company called Herman Miller. He was also a follower of Christ and an influential author of leadership books. He says that a leader's first job is to define reality. If you've ever been new to a place of employment or if you ever went to a church for the first time, you look around and you can see significant gaps in the way that things are being done. Wait a minute. You think you're here, but you're actually over here. You, you don't see this difference, right? defining reality and for these laborers it is not looking good there is much opposition that they're facing but a leader does more than that the leader does not just define reality a leader inspires like a coach like a basketball coach you may not know this about me but I was quite an amazing basketball player in high school I scored in my sophomore year 10 points on the season No, it was more like 12 or 14. I think it was about 10 in one game, but that was about it. And that amazing career in which college scouts just were speechless. It could have been my 10-inch vertical leap. It could have been my 7 to 8-second time in the, four, in the 40. That career began as a 6th grader at St. John's Elementary School. And the first uh, coach that I had was my 4th grade teacher. And this teacher was fiery. And I don't remember the game. I don't remember much about it. But as a member of the B team <clears throat> in sixth grade, and for those of you who don't know, B means better, <laughs> we got to wear the uniforms that were about 20 or 30 years old, right? At halftime, this coach looked at us and he was furious. He yelled at us, his face turned red, he was spitting coming out of his mouth, and he took his clipboard and he slammed it on the ground, and it broke into two. And my sixth grade friends and I were looking at him and just shaking in the huddle, right? I don't know what happened at the end of that game, but I can guarantee that we played much better defense in the second half. A speech is something of legends if... This, the person giving the speech defines reality and then inspires you to better. That was the case in 1940 when the Nazis were moving across Europe like locusts headed for the British Isles. Winston Churchill, after defining reality to the House of Commons, inspires. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. 
We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We will never surrender. Nehemiah is about to have his Churchill moment. Verse 13. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall and the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guards by families, armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah defines reality, he takes precautions, and then he inspires. Remember the Lord and fight. This is the people who was formerly exiled. These are people probably in the 400s BC who had heard the stories of God's faithfulness. He brought them, his chosen people, out of slavery through the Red Sea, that he provided manna in the desert. King David and his stories. But this is a people who also recognize the fact that they were born in exile because of the sins of their fathers. And it was there, beyond good fortune, it was the hand of God that brought them back out of exile to Jerusalem for this time and this place. With the opportunity to rebuild this home. That is the Lord that they remembered. And then they were inspired to fight Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. Okay, so I'm a little bit frustrated at Nehemiah, like, give me more details. What exactly happened? As I read this over and over again, in some way, God has intervened. Sanballat, ready to attack with his army, gets wind of the fact that they are ready to defend their wall. That they're not just masons, that they've got swords and they're ready to fight as well. And so God has done an amazing feat. He has responded to their prayer and is ready to defend. And the work continues. Almost 2,500 years later after this story, this really does still apply to us. You and I are not facing an army. You and I are not building a wall, but opposition is so real. When you face opposition, remember the Lord and fight. The God of the universe gave life to this world. And we have just a precious few years in which to share that news with the entire globe. Don't waste it. I have five things for you to consider as you and I remember the Lord and fight. They all stand, start with the letter A to make it memorable. The first word is adversity. Adversity is inevitable. In this world, you will have trouble. It's called sin. Your sin. My sin. Original sin. Like yeast that's sprinkled through dough, it's in everything. And everywhere we look, things are not working the way they're completely supposed to. And it starts with personal attacks. Personal attacks. The things that we hear in our ear that others say. And those get put on a repeat. 
Author John Acuff calls them soundtracks. So that one mean phrase that somebody says to you gets played in your mind over and over and over. And for me, it happens in the middle of the night. You're undeserving. You're unworthy. You are unable. I remember the moment when this happened with our daughter, Kira. Third grade, that day that she came home from school, things were a little bit different. This is a kid who was a kindergartner, first grade, second grade, had this incredible zest for life. She loved to wrestle. She couldn't say wrestle. She said whistle. Dad, let's whistle. What that means is that she ran on, started on that side of the room, ran over to me on the other side of the room, and just launched and, bam, slammed on me over and over again. It's the funniest thing ever, right? And then in third grade, something happened. And those soundtracks start to play. And kids start to talk. And at some point, we all become aware that we are in some kind of competition. People say things about us, to us, about our character and what we can or cannot do. And innocence is lost. And those soundtracks play in our mind. It originates with an adversary. And this adversary is worse than an army. It is the adversary. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. This is not a cat that claws at you every once in a while. This is not a dog that might bite your ankle. This is National Geographic, animal running way faster than you can, coming after you with claws like this and teeth ready to destroy and kill you. The second thing for us to consider is appeal to God in prayer. Appeal to God in prayer. The first thing that Nehemiah does when we meet him in chapter 1 And he hears of the devastation, he goes to God and he prays. The next time we find out, he prays when he's angry. And then when they're desperate, they pray. In Psalm 34, David says, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. All situations call for prayer. All situations call for prayer. The third thing to consider is that we need to approach opposition wisely. Approach opposition wisely. Strategy is necessary to fight. Go back to the passage of Nehemiah chapter 4. We're looking at verse 16. But from then on, only half my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, which is armor, The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah, who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. This is like what young moms can do, right? They can do 10 things at a time with their kids, right? If we keep reading all the way to the end of verse 23, we find out that now we have half of the laborers just as guards ready to fight And those who are continuing to work, they are also packing. They're ready to go. Let's make this happen. 
We find out that they're asked to work long hours to get this wall done as quickly as possible. And that they know that at the sound of a trumpet, drop everything they do and go to the rallying point and get ready to fight. Prayer and strategy go hand in hand. The problem is sometimes we defer completely to one or the other. If we completely rely on ourselves, if we completely rely on strategy, then we become self-reliant. No, 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 I, I can do it. I just need to read this book. I just need to attend this meeting. I just need to get a little bit better by myself. And then you take God out of the equation when you do that. Now, the opposite can be true as well. If we only pray about it and take no actions and we don't use the brains or the skills that God has given us, you're probably making a mistake. Philip Yancey is a Christian author who's, read, who's written so many influential books. And his most recent book is a memoir, and it tells an amazing story. I'd highly recommend you reading it. But it starts off telling the story of his mother and his father, who were married very young, and God was getting ready to send them overseas to be missionaries. And his father contracts polio. And he's in the hospital receiving treatment for polio, and his church prays about it and convinces him, no, you don't need this medical equipment. You've prayed about it. You're, you're taken care of. And so he withdraws himself from the medical care, and he dies. And that sends his mother spinning, and 60, 70 years later, she's never changed. Strategy and prayer. Strategy also requires wisdom from others. We need to constantly be talking with others. We need to find people in our lives, people of faith who can tell us hard things, who know us very well, who will speak into our lives. Two of those people for me are here today. Dave and I have been friends for decades, right? We're both in our late 20s, uh, but we did... <laughs> We did meet in uh, elementary school in the 70s and became good friends uh, in the 80s. He was my best man, and he can have hard conversations with me. He can also tell you of my quite illustrious basketball career. Please, please ask him about that later. But people like Dave and Julie will tell you the hard things, and they will listen in those awful moments and guide and direct and pray and get back to you. You have to have those people in your life. The fourth thing to consider is you need the audacity to fight. You have to have the audacity to fight. It takes courage to follow Jesus. And sometimes we have to do some things that are unnatural. Sometimes you and I need to speak up when it's quiet. Sometimes we need to be quiet when it's loud. Sometimes we need to stand up and march. And sometimes we need to sit down. Sometimes we need to give money. Just don't look away. I've talked to a few people in the last few months who themselves had been victims of homelessness and found themselves in a terrible spot. They've both come out of that place but their lives have changed because of it, and they have begun to serve others around them in the same situation. 
their experience is necessary for all to hear. I have an experience that some of you might not have. We have three kids. One is adopted from Ethiopia. And when I look at his future, I'm a little bit worried. Number one, what profession is he going to choose? Not just one that's going to support mom and dad in retirement, right? (laughs) But what if he decides, I want to go into law enforcement? Scared to death at what's going on in law enforcement communities right now. Scares me. On the other hand, I'm afraid of him driving. Daughter number one, we taught how to drive. Daughter number two, she is almost there. Child number three, you don't think that I'm going to have a conversation with him that I didn't have to have with my daughters who are white when he gets on the road? Scares me to death. The answer, by the way, is Jesus. The audacity to fight starts on your knees. I love that story in the book of Acts when Peter, who has been threatened by the council to knock it off and not talk about this Jesus ever again, goes back and is with the other disciples and says, that was a close one. All right, let's go on holiday. Nope, didn't go like that. 429 in Acts says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. The audacity fight is not a license to avenge, by the way. Romans chapter 12. Leave room for God's wrath. The audacity to fight. Neither is a license to express an agenda. Now, if the seats are tight right now, it's going to loosen up. There's going to be a few seats available because get ready. Maybe doing some offending here. (laughs) Much is done and has been done in the name of Jesus that looks nothing like the Jesus in my Bible. If you have the opportunity to take a church history class, one in detail, it's inspiring at what the church for 2,000 years has done to change the world. Don't listen to media right now. On the other hand, much has been done in church history to destroy the message of Jesus. With their intentions and with the way that they read their Bible, people have died. Sometimes killing other Christians. I've noticed in the last few years a renaissance of flags. And these flags become offensive. I know that I have a very offensive flag hanging inside my garage. It's blue and green and it has a Seahawks logo on it. (laughs) And I drive down the street and I see sports flags, but I also see other flags. And I see some American flags and I see American flags with different colorings than other American flags I've seen before. And as you drive out of this area, maybe to an urban area, or to a rural area, those flags start to change. And I'm not talking about the loyalty to your sports teams. And if you go across country, those flags continue to change. And those flags divide. And they're in vehicles, and they're on houses, and they're on buildings. 
and they tell you, this is where I stand. And if you have no agreement with this, then you're in the wrong. And unfortunately, sometimes as Christians, we try to take Jesus and mold him and stick him on that flag to communicate that the message of Jesus absolutely is the message of what this flag is saying. And you and I contend to ignore the unity that Jesus prayed for so that everybody knows about my flag and that everybody else is wrong. Crosspoint Church is a place of all kinds of people discovering and following Jesus. And sometimes I think that all kinds of people are, well, the ones that pretty much think like me. I don't have not those kinds of people. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. So friends, in your zeal, in our zeal, carefully choose how you're going to fight. Be careful at the flags that you're flying. Counsel, conversation, prayer is critical so that we point more to Jesus than to that flag. The fifth thing to consider is we need to assume that God has our back. Assume God has our back. Joshua 1.9, this is my command, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Whether we're doing what God wants and sometimes not, God is with us. And that doesn't mean there's any kind of guarantee with your life. Think about the story of the men in the fiery furnace, right? Hey, our God can save us, but if he chooses not to save us from death, that's okay. We still follow God. This church remembers the Lord. Absolutely. If you're new with us, you don't, haven't been here before, I can guarantee that. This church remembers the Lord. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That you and I can be reconciled to God, our creator, the God of the universe. This church tells of his deeds. In a couple minutes, we're going to hear seven, maybe eight, nine stories of people telling his deeds about the way that God has been faithful in their lives. But this church also knows that the adversary is prowling around like a roaring lion. And this church fights. We are not here to fill a calendar. We are not here to feel better about ourselves. We are here to discover and follow Jesus. And maybe that starts for you today. Maybe for the first time you say, I can't do it on my own. The flags that I've been flying, they just fall short. If that's the case... Get in that water today. This church fights, and sometimes that means that we engage culture, and sometimes it means that we walk against culture. And sometimes that means we engage and we fight against church 
culture. And if you've attended church as long as I have, you know that we can start to see things a little bit differently. We are not building a wall. With God's invitation, we are building his kingdom. We start that Saturday night, Sunday morning in worship. And we come to him and we surrender. I can't do it on my own. We proclaim hope to others around us. We do life together. We encourage each other in the worst moments. Now, we do have some specific building that's taken place. Inside your program this morning, you have a card, a commitment card. It looks like this. In the last few weeks and next week will be the last challenge. There's four specific challenges that we are offering to you, Crosspoint Church. The first one was to invite people to join us in worship. Find people that don't know Jesus that need to discover him. The second one specifically is a challenge to increase your financial giving. Not so that we can buy a, a plane for the church, a jet. This is not an issue of we need your money. This is an issue of you need to surrender. We need to surrender our money. Can you increase your tithe? The third thing is this, and I've got partial details. Party with a purpose. Happened a couple years ago. I'd love to tell you all about it. I wasn't there. But the stories I heard about it, Tim was in charge of it, amazing. And the party with a purpose is an opportunity for us to raise money that goes somewhere else. We haven't decided exactly who that's going to, but it's going to people in need. It could, might be missionaries overseas. It might be to an organization that's doing God's work. We will give you more details later. But it's going to be one of those six-figure days of giving and giving and giving. Super exciting. Number four challenges coming next week. I want to invite the band up right now. And right now, you're going to have an opportunity to remember the Lord. Number one, through communion. In the four corners of this room, you see what we have represented as the body and blood of Christ. And doing what he asked and remembering him by taking the bread, by taking the juice. Remembering the sacrifice for us, his deep love for you. You also have the opportunity to fight. And we fight in song. And we fight when we pray. The prayer team back there would love to pray for you as well, if there's anything going on. on. Remember the Lord and fight. Let's pray. Right now, I want you to consider one obstacle that you are facing. What is the soundtrack that you are playing in, in your mind that you hear over and over again? As you're considering that, I also want you to consider an obstacle that a neighbor of yours is facing, a coworker, another student at your school. Jesus, we come to you this morning 
And whether I'm sitting in the last row or whether I'm standing up on stage, I come in need of your mercy. Because the flags that I've been flying has a lot more to do with my agenda than your agenda. And we remember, God, how faithful you have been in our lives. The people that you've brought to us. The life that you gave me. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to give me life now and forever. To be fully reconciled to God. And I pray for each person this morning. For the soundtracks that they are hearing in their minds of the enemy's whispers. Bind the enemy. Jesus, may we hear your voice. May we hear your call. May we remember all that you've done. And if you're feeling right now that it's time, this is the day, I gotta do it for the first time. I'm ready to be baptized. I want you to walk back right now to the back of the room the far corner where the kids head out to their area. Katie's waiting for you there. Jesus, we remember you. Teach us to fight. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.